Hello, uh, my name is Miriam. I'm one of the members here at Above Bar Church, and I'm going to bring our reading tonight, which is from Ezra chapter 1. In the first years of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God, of, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had bought them, had them bought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, Shez sorry, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shezbazar bought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thank you very much, Miriam. Um, hi, everybody. My name's John, uh, one of the ministers here, and uh, great to see you. And uh, I guess there are quite a few people here this evening who have not been uh, back since kind of last term or pre-pandemic or whatever. So uh, if you're in that place, special welcome to you this evening. Great to have you here. Um, I'm going to try and open up that passage for a little while, just to give you a bit of a roadmap. I'm going to do about 20 minutes now and then come back for five minutes of just a little bit more kind of application after a little break, just so you know where we're going. One little warning is that I've lost my glasses, so I can't actually see very much here. So if I say something really dumb, it's not because I've gone kind of crazy. It's just because I can't see anything. But anyway, um, let's, let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's Word. Father, thank you that you love to speak. Thank you that you're not silent, but you, you want to communicate to your people and to your world. And so, Lord, we want to put our antennae up. We want to open our ears and our hearts. We want to receive from you. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray, and write your word deep into our hearts and lives for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you've probably noticed after, over the last uh, week or two, it's uh, just about 20 years ago uh, since September the 11th, 2001. And uh, our media feeds have been full of different kind of images, some of them quite harrowing, 
of the destruction that arose when those suicide bombers flew the passenger jets into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York, killing at nearly, nearly 3,000 people. Dreadful incident that's in many ways shaped the last couple of decades. It's been interesting to plug into some of the commentary on just how that has fed into uh, the trends of, of, uh, of society and politics over the last little while. The, uh, the rebuilding of that site, the site that became known as Ground Zero, began about five years ago. Intriguingly, the plan was not to just put back two towers, but instead to build six towers. And now four of the six are built, but the, uh, the program of rebuilding is ongoing. But it isn't just about buildings. There's a deep symbolism here, isn't there? In many ways, it's about the survival of a whole way of life, of a civilization, really. And it seems to me that the fact that they're not just sticking back to others, but, but six, doubtless differently configured, is kind of significant as well to say it's not just about survival, it's also about adaptation and growth and new vision as well. Thinking about that has taken me back to an experience I had uh, back in the 90s before 9-11 when uh, I visited the Polish capital, uh, capital city, Warsaw. And uh, if you know your, your history at all, Warsaw fell to the Nazis fairly early on in World War II. But in the final stages of the war, there was an uprising against the Nazi authority, and uh, the Nazis came down on the Poles and on the city of Poland in, in huge reprisal against that uprising, so that in the last year or so of the war, particularly in one massive blitz, 85% of historic Warsaw was flattened to the ground. There's an image uh, of it from that era. 85% of the city destroyed, utter devastation. But when I was there in the 90s, I went to what was called the Old Town. Uh, his picture of that same site um, now, today. And it's a beautiful, historic center, rebuilt by the Poles. It was actually rebuilt by them, largely to the kind of original plan of the city. When they came across a load of kind of cityscape paintings by the Italian artist, Canaletti, I'm not very good on my art history, Canaletto, there you go, who had painted the city and his cityscapes then enabled them to reconstruct it. I guess, to me, it's a great symbol of the, uh, the resilience and the bounce back of a nation and a people that have been so devastated by those events towards the end of the war. Put these two together, these two rebuilding projects. And I think it's quite striking. There's, there's one that emphasizes keeping the best of the past and adapting it to a new future, Warsaw, rebuilt along the old lines. And then there's another that's all about embracing and striking out to, to have a kind of bold new vision for the future. Two rebuilding projects. And there's something for us in both of those, I think. I told someone the other day, when they asked me that uh, leading a church through lockdown has often felt like walking through a war zone. And uh, it was, to be honest, a slightly indulgent comment on a bit of a bad day with a bit too much self-pity, I'm sure, because actually uh, COVID has been uh, pretty tricky, not just for church leaders, but for all kinds of leaders and for lots of other people as well. 
But to be honest, the image of kind of war zone-like destruction is not that far off what it has sometimes felt like. And there's no doubt that as a church community, we have a lot of rebuilding to do after the pandemic and some new building to do as well. And the challenge, I guess, is for us to learn from both of those building projects. The challenge on the one hand to reclaim the best of the past for the future, but also to look about how we need to adapt and build new to embrace the challenges of the post-COVID world that we hope is beginning to emerge now that the vaccines are helping us. So with that challenge in mind, I'm really excited that as a church over this term, we're going to get stuck into the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly the book of Nehemiah, to be honest, because if you look at those books, they are the story of three rebuilding projects, so incredibly relevant for us right now. Today, we're going to get a bit of an overview, and then from next week on, we're mainly plunging into the detail of Nehemiah. The context for Ezra and Nehemiah um, is, well, a story that begins long before either of them were around. It really begins about 50 years before them, when the Babylonians, the kind of world power of the time, invaded Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, and burnt, and burnt it to the ground, destroyed the place. Now, for the Babylonians, that was just all in a day's work. That's, that's what aggressive, global domineering empires do. And that's what they were doing then. Kind of, what's the big deal? But for the Jewish people, there was a whole nother level to that experience. Because the Jewish people were only too aware that God had chosen them to be his own that God had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. God had given them an identity and a land and a temple and a king and even a role to bring his light to all of the nations of the world. There's this big story that God had that they were at the heart of. But for centuries, despite lots of warnings from their own prophets, they had rebelled against that calling, rebelled against the God who called them. They'd gone their own way and frankly, had messed up pretty much everything. And so finally, in this act of destruction and exile, God had given them what they had chosen. They were choosing to push him away and say, no, we're not going to have you. We're not going to have your ways. And so God gave them life at a distance from him, in exile, away from their homelands, their temple and their capital city, destroyed. They got what they had chosen. But now, 50 years later, after those decades of suffering, something is beginning to change. The Babylonian superpower had given way in a kind of bloodless coup to the Persians instead. And their king, Cyrus, had decided that it was time for rebuilding to begin. And that's where the book of Ezra starts. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is a bit I really can't see very well at all, but anyway, I'll try my best. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. 
The world was changing. Cyrus, now the most powerful man in the world, has this idea, probably, to be honest, for his own political advantage, that he's going to send a lot of the exiles home back to their places, allow their religions to flourish again, but hopefully with lots of loyalty to the Persian Empire because of it. So for Cyrus, it was kind of good politics. But for the Jewish people, it was the fulfillment of the word of God that Jeremiah the prophet had spoken. And so it was that a bunch of Jewish people were sent home from their exile with the king's blessing to start to get the place sorted and in shape again. The rebuilding was about to begin. And that story of rebuilding goes really from the beginning of Ezra right the way through to Nehemiah, end of chapter 7. Now, if you want to get... um, like, if, do you, would you like getting the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah in eight minutes? Does that sound like appealing? Yeah? Okay. Okay, two of you like that idea. I think all of you should like that idea. Eight minutes, Ezra and Nehemiah. YouTube search for the Bible Project video on Ezra and Nehemiah. And in eight minutes, you get the most fantastic visual overview. There are a few details of its conclusions I honestly don't quite agree with, but we'll come to that later in the term. It's basically a brilliant way to get the whole of Ezra and Nehemiah in just a few minutes. And probably most of you are sitting there thinking, John, why didn't you just play that instead of standing here this evening? But I get to choose, so I didn't. Okay. But essentially, if you look back at Ezra and Nehemiah, it boils down to three building projects with three leaders. You see them up on the screen. Three leaders for three projects. Zerubbabel, the leader who led the community to rebuild the temple, the place of God's presence among his people, Ezra 1 to 6. And then Ezra, who gives his name to the book of Ezra, who rebuilds the community, the people, and teaches them the word of God, Ezra 7 to 10. And then Nehemiah, who rebuilds the city, and especially its walls and its gates. Three leaders, three building projects. But if you stand back from the three building projects, you'll find there are some common themes that run through each of them. And they're interesting and just worth noting down. Number one, each one begins in Persia with the backing of the Persian king. In fact, some of these projects were actually at that king's initiative, and all of them were with the king's support. Not always Cyrus, sometimes it was his successor, but always with the backing of Persia. Number two, it always involved a journey back to Jerusalem. In other words, there was an invitation from God and a decision to participate in it, a journey back to Jerusalem. Number three, the, the, the projects, each one gets mired in opposition and mess and complexity. Very earthy, real world. Number four, in the end, the projects are complete, but each time they finish in a slightly different way to what we expect, and frankly, with a little bit of anticlimax that's worth thinking about, the anticlimax. We'll come back to that bit later. But that's basically how the story goes. Three leaders, three projects, certain kind of trends that hold those three stories together. That's the overview, but the details are very rich, and I'm excited about us digging into those over the coming weeks between now and Christmas. And as we do, we'll find there's lots that we can pick out and learn from those details to equip us for some of the rebuilding challenge that we're facing as a church right now. 
But just to get us started, I've just got a few takeaway things for us to, uh, to learn, uh, really partly from those four trends that we've just seen. Number one, God sometimes surprises us with the people that are willing to support us. Remember, as I just mentioned, every one of those three projects was done with the backing of a pagan emperor, a Persian emperor. And that's amazing. Not what you'd expect. Now, it wasn't always straightforward because sometimes politics got in the way. But still, it's very striking that these projects had pagan support. And, you know, I think one of the legacies of this era of the pandemic is at present a slightly different attitude from government towards the churches in our country. And we need to just be ready for that. The churches are increasingly, both locally and nationally, coming, sorry, the authorities are coming to the churches for help and are willing to work with us. We've seen it locally, right in our own church, with the, uh, the Big Difference Emergency Food Project, where during the summer, the council came to us and said, how are we going to feed all of the, the families, the free school meals families across our city? Can you help us, please, above bar? And we did. Hundreds of bags of foods every week um, through, the, uh, through the project at the council's initiative. That's never happened to us before. But nationally, it's happening as well. Nationally, there's a particular move from government at the moment to, to ask churches to help in resettling refugees that are arriving, of course, in larger numbers at present because of the crises uh, in Hong Kong and Afghanistan. I was recently talking with someone who was involved in one of those meetings with the Home Office, and there was a group representing the churches, and then there was another group there. And the guy from the Home Office said to both groups, well, where have you got people who can help? And the other group said, well, we've got a team in this city and that city and that city. Great. And then the guy from the churches said, well, we've got people in every town and every village in the country. Now, how can we help you? That's a very, very different scene to the one that we had before. And we need to be ready for that. So going forward, we need to learn that everyone isn't always against us all the time. And it's better for us to come to terms with that. Yes, we need to be wise. Yes, we need to be discerning. But wisdom doesn't always mean suspicion. Sometimes God surprises us with who we can work with. Number two, Nonetheless, God's work will always face opposition. Do you know, I find it so hard to get out of my head the basic idea that if God is in something, it will go swimmingly. Do you know what I mean? God's in it, no barriers, no problems, everybody will be on board, it's just going to be a breeze. Isn't that how we often think? But if we read Ezra and Nehemiah, you will soon see that it isn't like that. God was in these projects, sure. He even prophesied them decades before. But as we saw, each one got mired in opposition and complexity. Some of that came from outside. There were uh, different people groups that were brought back into parts of the land that the Jewish people had been exiled from and then kind of intermarried with the few survivors there and became kind of on the fringe somewhere of, of the life of, of, of Israel and Judah. And many of those groups resented when the Jewish exiles came back and started rebuilding. And they opposed them 
quite harshly, sometimes making representations back to the Persian powers to, to try and turn them against them. Opposition from outside, but then there was also opposition from inside when the, uh, the people who returned started moaning against their leaders and started compromising with the surrounding nations. And through those two sources, outside and inside, all of the projects got mired down in complexity and in difficulty. And so it will be for us. God wants us to rebuild for sure. But there will be opposition. I want to say it falls to each of us individually to make sure that we are part of the solution, not part of the problem in that. Do you know, if I want to, I could moan about church life all day if you gave me a chance. There are plenty of things about Abba Bar that are not the way I'd like them to be. And what would I achieve through a whole day of moaning? Absolutely nothing. I can choose instead to say, no, I'm going to, it's not perfect, but I'm going to give myself and my best and my gifts in order to help this rebuild. And all of us have got that choice to make. But still, there will be opposition. Rebuilding will sometimes be tough. And therefore, we need to be resilient if we're going to stay the course. Number three, God uses leaders, but the work gets done together. A striking feature of all of the projects. Remember, we saw three projects, three leaders, okay? God believes in leadership, for sure. But actually, the leaders are not the ones that complete the projects. It's the community that gets mobilized, and the projects get completed. It's the only way it can happen. And let's just be clear. The future of our church does not lie primarily in having more staff, or more leaders. We've got a bit of recruiting we need to do for sure. But that isn't the key thing. The key thing is about us coming together as a community to get the job done. For some of us, that might be finding new gifts that the Holy Spirit is giving us and being willing to use and nurture and develop those. For some of us, it might be doing about stuff that, that actually we really would prefer somebody else to do, but we just step in to do it because we see it needs to be done. You know, just give you an example. We really, really want to start having tea and coffee after our services again, don't we? Huh? Yes, we do. All of us do, yeah? But honestly, until we've got a team, we can't do it. And so we won't. <laughs> now, you don't have to have the spiritual gift of tea and coffee making in order to join the team. You just have to have a willing and servant heart and not think somebody else is going to do that for me because I like tea and coffee after church. Do you see? So for some of us... It's about doing some stuff that we would prefer somebody else to do. But for all of us, it's about taking that responsibility to rebuild and to rebuild together. Number four, don't be put off by small starts. You know, there's this moment in Ezra chapter three where they're laying the foundations of the new temple. And as they lay them, some of them are rejoicing, thinking, hey, we've just rebuilt, the, started to rebuild the temple. But the old priests who could remember the old temple, they're crying their eyes out. Because as far as they can see, the new temple is only a shadow of the one that had been destroyed earlier. And their hearts are breaking. It all seems so small. Chapter 3 and verse 12, many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. 
both reactions, but many tears in that moment. The prophet Zechariah, writing at the same time, speaks into that reaction and warns against despising the day of small things. Yeah, maybe the temple isn't what it was before, but it doesn't mean that God isn't in it and that God isn't building. Don't despise the day of small things. And I think that's going to be very important to us, you know. I tell you, there's, I don't think there is anyone who longs for things in church to be as big as they were before than me. In fact, bigger and better. I, I don't want us to just be a private club in the city that no one notices because that is not God's calling to us. I want us to be a community of people that live out loud with the hope and life of Jesus. And don't let anybody in Southampton walk by without it being clear that Jesus is alive and that there's a people here who love and worship him and want to bless the city because of him. That's my ambition, my heart for the church. But... Good things often start small, don't they? And if we just despise the day of small things, we won't actually be trusted by the Lord to build the bigger things. It's brilliant to see quite a lot of people here this evening. And this morning we had one service that was just about rammed, which was great. And then on the east, good numbers again, so encouraging. But at the same time, if we're honest, all of us know that actually before the pandemic, quite a lot more than we've got here this evening. We used to come evening church, and we had, we had to have two morning services to fit everybody in. What are we going to do about that? Are we just going to cry into our coffee and say, oh, for the good old days? Are we going to despise the day of small things? Or are we going to come together and say, no, God is on the move. God is rebuilding, and we are going to rebuild with him. It's time to rebuild. That's my conviction, and uh, we're going to hear a little bit. Thank you very much, Josh. Just uh, a few minutes to conclude, really. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day who uh, visited Chernobyl over the summer. Now, some of you will uh, remember the name Chernobyl. Others of you probably won't. But Chernobyl was the site in Ukraine where a, a Soviet nuclear power station had a kind of explosion and meltdown in the nuclear reactor in 1986, and as a result, released a load of nuclear waste into the atmosphere. That was Chernobyl. And he showed me the pictures of his visit to Chernobyl. One of the most striking images was not actually the images of the old reactor um, and the kind of shield that they built around it, but these images of a little amusement park that had been built right nearby. It's called the Pripyat amusement park, and it had been built just before the 1986 disaster. But though Pripyat was built and finished, it wasn't opened before the disaster, and of course it never could open after it because of the nuclear disaster, and it never will. Kind of sad, isn't it? A great building project which never fulfilled the reason for it being built in the first place. Do you know, I think there's a bit of a warning to us in approaching the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that comes to us from that Pripyat building project about how we approach the whole issue of rebuilding as a church. See, I've introduced Ezra and Nehemiah as a story of three building projects. And in a sense, that's, that's what they are. But if that's all we see, we miss the point. We miss the reason for the rebuilding. 
And that's also the danger of rebuilding in the church. I mean, so many people say, let's just get everything back to normal, please, can we? Or actually, can we have it even a little bit better than normal and kind of change and move forwards a little bit more? And you, yes, of course. But why? But why? What's the goal? What's the aim? Because if we are just about building what we like to think is an impressive and successful church, well, that misses the point. Why? What are we here for? So Ezra Nehemiah, actually in the original Hebrew scriptures, it's one book, not two. Ezra Nehemiah, don't finish just with the completion of a building project. They finish instead with the thing that those building projects were all about, which was the renewal of the people of God in their relationship with him. That's where the story finishes. So Nehemiah chapter 8 They come together in a big kind of new wine, Keswick Spring Harvest, whatever you're into, massive Bible teaching festival where where God is speaking again through his word. And there's a lot of joy and celebration because they're hearing God. And then in Nehemiah 9, in response, they confess their sins and seek God for his help. And then Nehemiah 10, they make this covenant, this commitment, this promise before God to renew their relationship with him and to walk in his ways. That's the goal of the rebuilds. God's people renewed in relationship with him so that they're ready to fulfill his mission in the world. Now, when we get to that point in the story of Nehemiah, we'll see that actually the renewal kind of disappointed them. It wasn't completely fulfilled. It wasn't like the real thing because actually it's only in Jesus and in the gift of the Spirit that the renewal of God's people comes to full flourishing. And that's kind of interesting for us to reflect on more when we get there. But for Nehemiah and for us, it's so important that we remain focused on the goal. Rebuild, yes, but rebuild for the renewal of God's people. For sure, there's a rebuilding project for us right now. Lots more to do. But the goal isn't the rebuilding. The goal is the renewal. That's why we've called this whole series The Road to Renewal. Renewed in our relationship with God, first and foremost. Renewed and reconciled in our relationships with each other. Renewed in our passion to serve and reach our city and our world for the glory of Jesus. Renewal. The road to renewal, a journey of renewal. And I want to invite you this evening to make a bit of a pledge to get on that journey, to get on the road, to travel with God. I believe it's a significant moment in the life of our church. And therefore, I believe it's a significant invitation and one to which God wants us to respond. Maybe you just came here this evening to see your friends and hear what you hoped would be an interesting talk and sing some songs. But what if God had some different ideas? What if you're here this evening because God actually wanted to speak to you and is asking you to make a response? We set out this evening the road that he's calling us to, the journey to renewal. And he's asking us, are you going to get on that journey? Are you in? And so I want to just finish with a moment to ask you to reflect on that question. And I'm actually going to give you an opportunity to make a response as well. So can we just bow our heads for a moment of quiet and reflection?
I know very well that for some of us, this isn't the right time, and I don't want to encourage anyone to make a kind of choice under pressure or a choice that they don't really mean. But I do think that for some of us, this is a moment for us just to say yes, to kind of nail it with God and with each other, that we're in and we're going to join that road to renewal. We're going to be part of the rebuilding. So just reflect on whether that's you this evening. And if it is, in a few moments, I'm just going to ask you to stand where you are so I can pray for you. Let's reflect and seek God for a moment. So the road to renewal stretches out before us. The invitation that God makes, we have all heard. If this evening you want to say, yes, I'm in. I want to be a participant, not a bystander. A contributor, not a consumer. I want to be on the journey. I don't want to be standing still and looking back. If you want to say that, I want to ask you right now just to stand up where you are as a signal to yourself before God and in this congregation to say, yes, I'm in. Please stand if you want to. There's no pressure on anybody. There's no shame in sitting if God isn't stirring you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you haven't finished with us. Thank you that you have a journey for us to make, a journey to make together. Thank you for setting before us the road to renewal. And Lord, for every one of us who is standing right now to say yes, I want to pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, that you'd encourage their hearts and strengthen their resolve, that you would draw all of us together to walk this road, to come close to you, to be reconciled to each other where there is distance, and to step out to serve and reach our city. And Lord, for those who are not sure or who are called to other places, have your hand on them as well, your hand of blessing and encouragement, so that all of us can live the lives you've called us to for the glory of Jesus.